This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Rafael Lesquer about working with Aiko Ishioka and Bjork, about designing the 311 and Made in New York logos, and about what it takes to make it in this business. I've seen a lot of really talented people, but they don't have the discipline to really carry that through. And I've seen a lot of disciplined people that perhaps don't have the natural talent, but they do amazing stuff. Here's Debbie Millman. The summer before he turned 10, Rafael Esquer pushed an ice cream cart through the streets of Guadabampo in the Mexican state of Sonora. And he kept seeing a certain pair of sneakers. He loved them. He coveted them. Each time he sold a cone... Rafael tucked away the commission. That fall, as he walked to the store to buy those sneakers, Rafael remembers thinking, My God, I could do anything I want if I were disciplined and had vision. Anything turned out to be design school in Mexico City, design school in Los Angeles, then a job at Radical Media in New York City where he built a beautiful portfolio. In 2004, that portfolio won Raphael a National Design Award from the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. Soon after, he founded a branding and graphic design firm called Alfalfa, whose clients include the City of New York, the Robin Hood Foundation, and a little shoe company called Nike. Raphael Esquer, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Happy to be here. So the first question I want to ask you is an important one I've been wondering about for a long time, and I know you have the answer to it. Why are manhole covers round? We just wrote about it in our (laughs) blog, and it was written by uh, one of my beautiful designers, Minal Nairi. And really, the answer is not in the... It was just a question for you to wonder. There is not a strict answer, because actually there are different shapes. Do you have a particular penchant for manhole covers? Well, I actually really love everyday objects. In fact, when I was designing the Made in New York mark, the inspiration came from the everyday objects of New York. And uh, it really resembles a little bit of the manhole covers and also the old subway token. So combining those two, the Made in New York mark was born. Well, I'll get to the Made in New York mark in a little while. I want to ask you a little bit more about how you did that project. I want to talk a little bit about your background. I understand you grew up in a hacienda where you raised livestock and cultivated alfalfa. Well, uh, my mother family has a big farm, ranch in the north of Mexico, and uh, family income. My father was a professor. And my mother uh, just took care of the farm. And uh, yes, I grew up amongst uh, all kinds of animals, mainly cows, goats, pigs, chicken. Did you take care of them? I helped, yeah. But I was more interested in drawing, really, always drawing. But it was a, a really a beautiful way to grow up. I understand that when you were in high school, you told your mother that you wanted to move to Mexico City to pursue a career in art. What was her reaction? My mother is really amazing, actually. She's very encouraging of everything I wanted to do. Uh, my father, his job was to go to rural communities in the north of Mexico and convince parents about the importance of education, that they should send their children to school. He will build the school, 
uh, hire teachers and then get it going, and then we would, we would move to a different town. So it was a really respectable profession, and he wanted all of his children to follow his path. So when I was very young, I thought I was going to be a teacher. But uh, my mother once told me, you don't have to be a teacher. You can be whatever you want. And that's when I started looking at options, and I saw that I could do something in art. So at 17, I moved. When I finished high school, I moved to Mexico City and started studying art. Now, you studied photography and sculpture and painting. That's right. When did you decide that you wanted to be a designer? Well, I, I actually wrote to different universities, and I got the brochure on graphic design, and that seemed to fit really perfect. I moved to Mexico City, and in my way to make the exam, I got lost. So I never made it to the graphic design school, but I was already in Mexico City, and I didn't want to go back to Sonora. So I decided I have to look for something else. I found a really nice school in photography, and I enrolled, and I loved it. And there were some students that were doing graphic design as well. It was a very small, intimate school that had photography and graphic design. So then I got more interested in the things that they were doing, and then I just switched to to design. So the Getting Lost gave you an opportunity to study painting, sculpture, and photography. Did you ever think that you wanted to go into any of those fields as a profession, or were you always set on graphic design? I didn't have a very precise goal. I just wanted to do things that I enjoy. I'm always exploring. Even now in the studio, we have five projects in five different disciplines. So it's, it's, it's the idea of challenging yourself. So, and, and, and I think that we need to, as, a, as designers, we really need to be open-minded to welcome other disciplines. And I think studying painting, studying sculpture, writing has helped me tremendously in what I do every day. Actually, I think that I've heard that quite a lot from a number of really well-known designers. In fact, Michael Beirut has often said that he wishes he'd studied anything but graphic design while he was in school because everything really does. Knowing so many different things helps you to become a better designer. Absolutely. Now, you attended college in Mexico City, but you then moved to Los Angeles to study English, and you thought that move would be temporary. Um, that was quite a long time ago. So what happened? I, I, I was 21, and it was the introduction of the Macintosh. And my university had only one computer, and it was only for the upper-level students. And everything was in English, and my English was not good. So I decided, okay, when I get to a semester, I want to be the one using that computer. So I decided to take a break and move to Los Angeles, enroll in English classes, and uh, the six months turned out into a year, and now 22 years. So you started working for a magazine and became the art director once you were in Los Angeles. What magazine? It, it was a bilingual magazine, a weekly magazine, kind of like The Village Voice. I started as a designer, then the art director left a couple of months after, and I started just finishing the magazine while we find another art director, and eventually I basically stay for two years finishing the magazine every week. How did you find the original job? If you didn't speak English that well and it was a bilingual magazine, was that an issue for finding jobs back then? It was, but I was very driven and determined, and there was this opportunity, and I just went for it. 
I, I remember I would take the articles from the Los Angeles Times and actually rewrite them by hand. And every single word that I did not know the meaning, I would look it up. So I would do that at least two or three times a week. And then later on, I would do drawings and, you know, make it visual. The, the language just helped me understand it and better. So while you were working as the art director of this magazine, you also got a scholarship then to the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And so talk about that experience. Who were some of your professors? Who did you, who were you most inspired by while you were there? It was a great place. As a designer, my education was very limited when I was the art director, and I had these ideas in my head that I somehow didn't turn out the way I wanted. And I said, I really need to become a better designer. So I put together a portfolio, and our center was still is one of the top schools in the country. And very competitive, but I decided I want to go there, and I need to get a scholarship because it's also very expensive. It's also very hard to get a scholarship. It is, it is. And, uh, and I, had a, I met amazing people. I was taught by great designers, such as uh, Roland Young, who designed the Beatles album, White, Simon Johnston from Octavo, he taught me a lot about typography. And, of course, uh, Rebecca Mendes, who was the design director, and she just won, as you know, the National Design Award. And uh, I became obsessed with uh, Rebecca and her teachings, and eventually I was her assistant, and I worked for her before I moved to New York. What made you decide to move to New York? When I finished college, I had three job offers. Uh, One was at Nike in Portland. One was a Capitol Records in Los Angeles, and one was for an advertising company in New York, uh, Poppy Tyson Interactive. Now let's uh, just pause for one moment. Sure. You're, you're graduating college, and you have three job offers, one from a record company, one from the biggest sneaker company in the world. How did you feel? I mean, were you still worried about your abilities at that point? I think what education gave me and Art Center, good education, was confidence. And also, deep down, being chosen to work one-on-one with Rebecca Mendes, also I felt privileged and, and a responsibility, but also had the confidence that I could do anything. I mean, there is nothing to lose, right? You just get fired, but get another job. So, so which job did you end up taking? New York. So I really choose, um, I guess from the career point of view, it was the least interesting, but I really wanted to be in New York. I always think that there is always a revolution happening in this city every single day, and I wanted to be part of that. And a lot of, you know, my design heroes were here. And uh, And that was a great time for design, too, mid-90s. Tell me about your relationship with Eiko Ishioka. I know that she was incredibly influential to you. You worked with her for many, many amazing projects. How did the two of you meet? I actually met Eiko when I was um, at Art Center. You know, as a student, you always look for those role models. And, And I thought the design could be something really bigger than what I was seeing. So I ran into this book called Eiko by Eiko. It's a beautiful, huge red book. It was this this Japanese woman just designing with no boundaries. She would do 
set design. She would do f- fashion design, costume design, of course, graphic design. She had her studio for many, many years in Japan, book design. So I kind of just said, I would love to have a career like that or just keep my options open. And uh, I moved to New York and, you know, her influence was always there. And I would always go back and, and look at her work. And one day, my, my, the owner of Radical Media walked into my office and he said, I had dinner with a Japanese designer. Her name is Eiko Ishioka. She has a project that she cannot do, but I told her to meet with you and you should do it together. That's like a dream come true. I mean, what are the odds of something like that happening? It's incredible. I mean, so said, what project was it? It was uh, with the Olympics. It was the Olympics. Okay. Yeah. She at the time had three jobs coming, the Winter Olympics, the uh, Bjork uh, music video, and the uh, costume design for uh, Cirque du Soleil. She had to design over 100 costumes. So you worked with her on two of three of the projects. Exactly. So I met with her the next day, and her assistant told me to bring my portfolio. And we met in a very nice little simple restaurant in the Upper East Side. And uh, what she, was it like? Were you nervous? Were you confident? Were you? I, did you I, feel like it was destiny? I was really nervous. I, I I never thought that she would say, "Yeah, I like you. Let's work together." So we came in, and then we started talking. And three hours later, we're still talking. And she never looked at my book. We talk about family, about her family, about my family, about my my views on design, and. At the end of the meeting with her, she said, have you done any fashion design, clothing? Then I thought, oh, this is it. So I said, no. She said, great, let's do it. Oh, I love that. So she always loved the fresh idea of the outsider. And I think that's her work is still fresh. I've read that you said that you feel as if you have a master's degree in the philosophy and design of Eko-san. When you were working together, you rarely stopped before midnight. You worked all through the weekends. And for the both of you, design was more than work. It was life. And you said that you enjoyed every second spent with her. I also read that you many times ran out of sketch pads, pencils, printers, ink, that uh, Eko's demand for perfection was boundless. Um, What are some of the other things that she taught you? Well, she had an, an obsession with beauty. She thought that beauty was the highest power because it needs no explanation and it just gets you right to the heart. And beauty in the bigger sense of the word, something that just grabs you, that has mystery. She believed that design should ask questions instead of give you all the answers. Even a single line in the sketches, she will question it. When we did the Winter Olympics, we covered the entire conference room with designs. I mean, she wanted the whole world. She had this idea that design is almost like a play. You know, like as designers, we need to shock the audience somehow, make them react. So when the Japanese and the Olympic Commission came to a studio, she decided to cover the entire room. So there were over 100 uh, design directions. And I, I, from what I understand, they weren't just design directions. They were fully rendered sketches. They were, yes. I understand that the client's goal for the 
uh, Winter Olympic uniforms was to bring power, intelligence, and grace to the sportswear design. And I read that your theme was an idea that was very representative of the 21st century. And this is in 2002, looking ahead. And it was genetics. So genetics became the inspiration for the uniforms for the Olympics. And can you give us some detail, give us some background on how that happened? It was the ACOS overall vision, you know, genetics. and But in the bigger sense, again, it's not genetics from the biology, medicine point of view, but engineering. Um, anatomy? Anatomy, absolutely. Uh, product design. In fact, I was just cleaning up my um, archives last week, and I just, I was looking at the piles and piles of paper. This is before Pinterest, of course, and all of these things <laughs> that we um, we look at the teams. We actually talk to a lot of the athletes. athletes. Um, so the Canadian, they only ask, we want our uniforms to be red. They actually, athletes are a little bit like, uh, they're very superstitious, some of them. So the Canadian theme thinks whenever we were red, we win gold. So for the Canadian theme, we did a muscle suit um, that we wanted to make them look like su- like superheroes. And uh, and I was amazing when the client actually took us to the Olympics. We had passes for all the events. And uh, when the Canadian team hit the speed skating ring, they really looked like they came from outer space, like these superheroes. And so it was exactly Aiko's idea. The power of design can really help them achieve the goals so because they felt like superheroes. You, you mentioned Canada, so the Canada, the Canadians' alpine ski team suits featured geographic DNA, uh, a list of all 44 team members' hometowns running down the right arm, and a list of over 600 Canadian cities running down the body. So was that kind of personalization inherent in all of the country's uniforms? Yes, and our main client, we had two clients. We had the Olympic Committee per country, and we had the manufacturer of the clothing, which is the Zant. So the Zant, uh, they had these four countries that they provide Olympic wear, which is Japan, Switzerland, Spain, and Canada. So it was really for four countries and the Olympic committee per country. For instance, for Spain, the client told us they never win, but they want to look great. <laughs> they want to look like winners. <laughs> so we did a beautiful pattern also inspired by genetics, but more on the form of genetics. <laughs> so now let's talk about Bjork. So you worked with, at the same time, Bjork and Eiko Ishioka. I mean, how is that even remotely imaginable. Um, But you worked with them on Bjork's CD and DVD package for Cocoon. And Eiko, who also directed the music video, and and this is the amazing music video for our listeners, listeners that might not be aware, where Bjork gradually becomes encased in a cocoon of red threads that are spun from her own nipples. And then you, Raphael, you selected evocative stills from the video. You added customized typography and and created this magnificent, magnificent package for the CD and the DVD. Um, What was it like working with the two women at the same time? You know, it's one of these things that you don't really realize what is happening until afterwards. But I must say, I, I knew of Bjork from the outside. I had listened to her music, and I had seen the movie, and and I cheered my respect. But when I actually got the assignment to design the 
the album cover, I went and bought all the music and I started listening day and night to then I was paralyzed. It's like this this woman is genius, you know, she's really, really, really amazing. One of the very few that has combined art and commerce in a really amazing way. And then I look at the people that have worked with her, which are, you know, the top of the top uh, creatives in the world. I just couldn't do anything for three days, including sleep. But then, you know, you have to just deliver and uh, started working on it. I showed her four designs and uh, I actually also met with her and she's very, she likes to see the people that works with her. And I think that's why the work that she produces is amazing because it's one-on-one, it's very personal and uh, so I went to her place and gave, showed her the designs, and she said, okay, I'll get back to you. And then I got a very nice email saying, I love them all. I'm going to use one for the Asian market, one for the European market, and CDs and DVDs. And it was going to be one at the beginning, but she ended up using all the designs. You mentioned that Aiko had a very specific idea of what beauty was. Um, I understand that Bjork's art direction to you was very simply this one line, uh, make it beautiful, make it shockingly beautiful. And in looking at the work, I do think it's shockingly beautiful, but I also think there's something else there. And I don't know if it was what you intended, but it's a little bit scary. Like I felt that the the red thread or the bars coming out of her mouth and encasing her. It was ethereal. It was a little bit unsettling. Maybe unsettling is a better word than scary. But was that intentional? I think so. I think not in a 100% I'm going to make it unsettling. But I wanted to make something that somehow has mystery and that you're intrigued by it. But yet there is something there that makes you a bit uncomfortable. And it got a lot of provocative response. People were really talking about it for quite some time. Why do you think that that happened? Well, I think when you work with a, somebody in the show business, you get you know a higher level of response. But I think in terms of image making, it's, it's very memorable. There is something poetic, beautiful, and choking at once. In That is hard to achieve in design, I think. Oh, it's really hard to achieve in anything. Um, You started your own company shortly thereafter. Uh, You started your own company in 2004. And on your website now, one of your specialties is in image making. What is image making? How do you define image making? I don't know if I have one simple answer, but I think it's just having the audacity to create images that just are thought-provoking in a way, that are not only appropriate but memorable. And, uh, you know, if I can just do one more, I'll be, I'll be fine. I think it's a, just, just really? this quest. I don't, I don't think you'll be fine if you just do one more. I think you do one more and you'll want to do one more after that. <laughs> okay, yes. I have an addicted personality. <laughs> so... When somebody comes to you as a client and, I mean, do people actually say, I want you to create this image for me? Or is that something that you would recommend or you would bring to your client as one of the things or the, one of the ways in which you will inter- interact with them? 
I think some of the portfolio brings the client, and uh, but it's usually us or that propose something. Many times they haven't even thought about it. Somebody just told me the other day, you know, you're so lucky. You have all of these amazing projects, but it's not really luck. It's, it's you make it. You know, it's, it's if you really put your passion and and care for the work that you do then I think it's unavoidable. Something good had to come out. Well, you left the security of your position as a creative director at Radical Media. I mean, this is a company that Eiko Ishioka came to and said, I'd like to work with you on this. So it was a very big, prestigious job. And you set up a one-man shop in the garment district in 2004. And I read that you very specifically began to choose projects that you could pour your passion into. Were you ever afraid that you weren't going to make money? Were you ever afraid about your future? I'm afraid every day. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, at the moment I'm very comfortable, I become uncomfortable. I don't like to be too comfortable because I, I like to be challenged. And I think running your own company, you have to be reinventing yourself. Yeah, it, it was scary at times, but, you know, I don't regret it. I was a radical media for seven and a half years. I just felt that it was time to change. I also missed the hands-on, really doing the design. We became really big, started very small. I, I started the, the design group of the company, and I hired every single designer, every single person, and, and it was really like a very nice family, but at some point... We started getting awards, recognitions, and bigger clients, and then it became another way that I wanted to work. It just it, nothing wrong with with that, but I, I just really I love people and working with them and helping them or working to collaborating in, in finding the right solution. That it just I was missing that part, and and now with Alfalfa, it's just. It's just very nice to see that what you do affects directly, you know, the person that you're talking to. Our clients are smaller and some of them are bigger. It's very nice to like your clients. Let's talk about some of the projects that you've become very well known for doing at Alfalfa. Um, the first is 311. The 311 citizen service campaign was developed to launch the New York City government's 311 program, which is very different from the 911 program. So could you uh, help our listeners understand the difference? Absolutely. That was a brand new program. That was, I think, 2004. And uh, so the city wanted to have this very easily recognizable and number that you can call for any issue, any complaint, any question that you have to the government. And uh, I had experience working with a, with a city. I know their printers are not the best. Um, and, and so I really wanted something to, first of all, I thought of the practical aspect. You know, we need to have colors that are very easy to reproduce. So 100% yellow and 100% black. So that was the, the, that's the brand colors. And then it was going to be just 311. So when I asked them, what do you want people to do? They said, well, to dial 311. I said, well, let's call it dial 311. And so that became the dial 311. And now the people know it very well. And by the way, we had one week to do it. One week? Yeah. They, they, they had another design that was actually very cliche. It had the Statue of Liberty, you know, like what you would expect, uh, almost clip artish. 
So they said, but we're launching next week. It's all set. We need something, you know, quick. So within a week, we had a little yellow square. And um, and next week, it was in every single taxi in the city, trash cans. And, and it's interesting now that I travel around the country, a lot of cities have emulated that. It's almost like the icon for information of the government. Now, from the start, you wanted to have Alfalfa be a small entrepreneurial enterprise. You have been very vocal about promoting not only project diversity, doing lots of different things, but also personal diversity in terms of the type of people that you want to work with and the type of people that you surround yourself with. You're also on the advisory board for AIGA's Diversity Archives as the curator for the exhibits of contemporary and 20th century and 21st century now work by minority graphic designers. Talk for a moment, if you can, a a little bit about why they're have been so few minorities in graphic design. I think it's, the world is changing now, but there seems to have been quite a lot of uh, acceptance of women in graphic design before minorities. I just want to get your thoughts on that. It really bothers me in being so involved with AIGA to see that lack of diversity. It is a big question because the country is very diverse. New York City is incredibly diverse. And... Um, Recently, we went to a presentation celebrating 30 years of AIGA in New York, and I was really excited, and I go, and all of a sudden, in the most diverse city in the country, there is no one Latin designer. I don't know if there was a black designer. So I was quite disappointed, you know, that uh, omission. Then it got me thinking, if the diversity doesn't exist in the most diverse city in the country, then where is it? And what can we do about it? So one of the things that I'm trying to help, I mean, there there are many, many factors, I think, why this issue happens. One is the lack of uh, role models. There are very, very few very successful, very visible uh, minority designers that you can, the young students can look up to. Uh, one of the reasons why I went to our center is because the design director at the time was Rebecca Mendez, and that name alone just made me work harder because I said, someone like me is doing this amazing work. I can do it too. And also, uh, design, art is not uh, the career of choice of Latino families or minority families to encourage the kids to do. You know, they want a better future, a more secure future. So they encourage them to be perhaps doctors, lawyers, or something that is just safer. Um, And I think it starts, you know, a lot from there and a lot from the lack of role models. But I think little by little we are gaining, you know, momentum. I think the IGA Design Journeys was a nice way to promote it, and I wish we continue with that. Well, you mentioned Made in New York, and I also want to talk to you about the work that you did for the mayor's office of film, theater, and broadcasting to support their initiative to attract film and television studios to produce work in New York City. Um, And this is a mark you see everywhere now, the Made in New York mark. It must be incredibly fulfilling to have come from Mexico City, studied in Los Angeles, moved to New York to make your mark, 
and you literally have made your mark in New York City, for New York City. Was it hard to get through? Did you enjoy working with the mayor's office? Was it challenging? I must say it's been the easiest presentation I ever had to do. In what way? We worked really hard. We had about 10 ideas to present, and that one was the second one out of the 10. We showed the first one, and then that's when that one came on, Catherine Oliver, the film commissioner, said, that's it. That's the one. I don't want to see more. That's the one. And so all the staff was there, the marketing department. They all love it. It's the first time that I didn't even have to show the the other work that we have wow, done. Wow, that's like miraculous. Yeah. <laughs> Talk yeah, about no. the usual bureaucracy you have to go through to think that a Made in New York mark could be approved that quickly. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's a testament to your talent. Now, you've also launched your own online lifestyle brand, Alfalfa New York, and you design T-shirts, gift items, tote bags. Your first collection was a series of T-shirts inspired by the seven deadly sins. Um, talk about that. Sure. It was a little bit of, uh, again, giving back. Um, I, my introduction to art, just coming from a small place, was... I'm sure you're familiar with the posada, calaveras, the skeletons. The, yes. Um, so that was what I first knew growing up as art. And then Jose Guadalupe Posada, who is the Mexican engraver, and I consider him maybe the father of Mexican graphic design. I was inspired by him. He he did a, a lot of engravings on the deadly scenes and, and, and things of mythology, religion, legends. And so my first collection, I decided to honor, you know, the father of Mexican graphic design. And so what are your next plans for your own brand? Well, the the second collection is the Seven Latin Divas. And it's also, I mean, all of this is a reaction to something. Whenever you think of a Latin icon, you think of Che Guevara, perhaps. It's the first image that comes to mind. And coming from a place where women are so powerful and strong and iconic, it was just curious to me that, that you know, they don't really represent the, the Latin culture. So I proposed seven. I did some research on who are the seven pioneers in their own fields, in music, art, etc. So the second collection was a response to, to the Che Guevara image with a female response. So if people are interested in buying this work, they can go to your website and purchase it. Is there a special site for the Alfalfa New York brand? Yes, it's alfalfanewyork.com. That's easy. (laughs) (laughs) So you are very busy doing new work, and I know that a lot of the newest things that you're doing are not yet on your website. Um, But I know you're working on a large-scale mural that's going to be coming out soon. Um, it's not quite out yet. Are you allowed to talk about it? Uh, yes, a little bit, for okay. sure. So it's a, it's a large-scale mural for the Department of Housing. It's for the city of New York. And tell us the rest. I got a call one day from Lonnie Tanner, a very enthusiastic, very nice lady that runs this, this uh, program, where she's trying to make places such as homeless shelters just maybe nicer, um, make people feel better uh, that they're going through this difficult time in their life. So she's hiring artists, designers to just make the place looking better. And she said, you know, I love the mural that you did for the library, and I would love love it if you design a mural for us. Talk talk about what you did for the library before we finish talking about what you're going to do for sure. the city of housing. 
that was also a, a bit surreal. I got an email from Michael Beirut, who is amazing and one of my heroes as well, um, asking me if I would want to be part of the group of artists and designers to design a mural for a library. So I said yes and went to the Bronx, and there is this huge library, and I worked with the architects and um, so come up with the idea for a mural. But I think as, as designers, I, I don't really like to just go in and say, this is what I did uh, for you. Better ideas when you work in collaboration. So I, I decided to run a workshop with the students from the, from the school in the Bronx, and we just created content, and that content decided the design that ended up being in the, the mural. What was some of the content? Well, we, um, we play games for, you know, one afternoon, and we ask them questions like, uh, imagine that you can eat a word. Which one will taste really good to you? A word to describe your best friend. If you have the power of an animal, which one would that be? So the challenge was, how do I translate that visually into a mural? So we just played with words and silhouettes and created this universe. And, you know, growing up in a country with murals uh, are so important, part of the culture. My mural for the library starts with a home, and it goes through the streets, through media, through school, and then at the end, on the other side of the mural is you know, professions, what you're going to be when you grow up. So it's really like a, a little journey, a visual journey through language and images. And so the Department of Housing saw this, thought that uh, you might be the right person for this new mural, and what are your plans for this mural? Well, again, on 4th of July, while a lot of people were celebrating, we conducted a workshop at the center, and 100 people showed up, families, mothers, children, parents um, that live in the center. They actually live there for, for one year. And we did the same thing. We just ordered pizza, put them in different tables, made teams, and, and got a lot of content. And again, we asked them questions, a lot of fill in the blanks, like the thing that I'm most proud of is blank because blank. And my favorite color is because and some of the answers are really touching. Um, like one kid said, my favorite part of the city is the Bronx because I belong there. Some others were funny. We asked them, please tell the artist to draw something especially for you in this mural. And so I assume it was one girl that said, I want the artist to draw me as a teenager with my teenage friends chillaxing in the beach. <laughs> so, <laughs> chillaxing in the chillaxing. beach. Very nice. To translate all of this into something visual that I just want them to have this sense of ownership, belonging. I want them to just go there and smile for a little bit or something. It sounds magnificent. I'm very, very interested in seeing how you graphically convey chillaxing. I read an interview with you online. Uh, I think it's called 10 Answers. And the question that was asked to you was, what is the best advice you've ever received? And I loved your answer. You responded, I'm not genius. I'm disciplined. And I'm wondering why you responded that way. I think it's going back to that 
lesson that I learned in the summer when I was 10, I learned that if you are disciplined, if you really apply yourself in what you want to do, you really succeed. I've seen a lot of really talented people, but they don't have the discipline to really carry that through. And I've seen a lot of disciplined people that perhaps don't have the natural talent, but they do amazing stuff. And, and the quote is actually from Eiko Ishioka when she was being interviewed when, when we finished the Winter Olympics. Uh, she, there was a press conference. The uniforms were in an exhibition in Salt Lake City, and later they were acquired by the Olympic Museum. But in this um, press conference, they asked her, you know, Eiko, Eiko, you're genius. How do you do it? And she said, I'm not genius. I'm disciplined. And, and I think I learned that from her that, you know, if you really want to achieve something great, it's not that easy. You have to work hard. Rafael, thank you for being on Design Matters. And thank you for being such a wonderfully disciplined and inspiring role model for so many people. Thank you. To learn more about Rafael's work, you can visit alfalfastudio.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica, and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.